As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. Matters of Life and Death, a podcast from Premier Unbelievable. Well, hello and welcome to another episode of Matters of Life and Death. As always, I'm Tim White and I'm joined by my dad, John White. Hi, Dad. Hi, Tim. Good to be here. So today we're looking at a slightly different direction. Uh, we're going to be talking about public sector strikes. Um, to place it in a bit of its context, this is a topic that is really on the top of everyone's mind here in the UK as we're currently in the kind of depths of a huge wave of, of strike action um, over the last few months, kind of starting the second half of last year, but continuing on. Um, we've had uh, teachers went on strike, paramedics, postal workers, train drivers, nurses, and as we're going to come on to the talk, uh, junior doctors are, as we speak, currently voting in their union about whether to go on strike as well. So what are, what are some of the reasons why we've seen this kind of sudden surge in industrial action, do you think? Well, it's a fascinating phenomenon and, and a deeply troubling one, really. Uh, for me, it's got very sort of uh, strong resonances of when I uh, actually I was just uh, in the process of qualifying as a doctor in the late 70s. And uh, at the time, it was the winter of discontent, and there was this massive uh, strikes going on, uh, affecting uh, the bin men. I remember there was uh, accumulation of rubbish everywhere. There were sort of, I think there were graveyard workers and bodies <laughs> building up. There was, uh, and eventually, in, uh, power cuts. That's right. There were there were rolling power cuts. There were uh, transport three day week uh, in three, the end. And wasn't eventually, it? Yeah. that's right. There was a three day week. To turn the power and, off, uh, and there was this kind of sense that of impending sort of social dissolution. I can remember it at the time and thinking, "What on earth is going to happen?" And then, uh, well, politically, you're you're interested in the political history, aren't you? But um, Labour's uh, com- the Conservatives at the time it was a Labour government who were desperately trying to appease the unions and find a way forward. And and then there was a general election and a landslide victories for the Conservatives and Margaret Thatcher. Uh, came into power yeah I mean the kind of the way the history is often told is that period is that the kind of during the 70s Britain was kind of economically stagnating um, you know the the industrial revolution had fizzled out and we hadn't yet transitioned to a kind of modern services economy and and so it was a kind of I'm told a kind of grim and tired and over worn <laughs> down place to be the so-called sick man of Europe right. it was often described as and I guess what we see in in history is that strike action is often correlated with kind of periods of economic downturn when the workers are feeling the pinch 
salaries aren't going up or jobs aren't as plentiful. Um, and I guess that's what we're seeing at the moment in the same, you know, the, the primary driving factor for these strikes is about pay again. It's because inflation has soared to kind of four, basically 40 year highs, higher than it's ever been since the 70s and 80s. Um, and inevitably, people's pay packets are not jumping up in, in, in with the way that prices are shooting up. And so more and more professions are deciding the only way to get the pay they think they want and deserve is to walk out. Yeah, but it's it's not just a, a recent phenomenon, is it? I mean, I think this is the culmination of many years of so-called austerity in the UK, yes. where uh, successive governments have been very powerfully restraining public spending. And the net effect is that uh, many uh, public workers are are arguing that over for years their pay packets have not kept pace with inflation and it's the situation was slowly slowly getting worse and then you get this final runaway inflation which uh makes uh, many people feel that their their wage and incomes are just unsustainable yeah that's right it, it kind of it probably st- the, the the origins of this probably do lie over about 12 years ago you know with the the financial crisis which then led to the election of a of a conservative, well, conservative Lib Dem coalition government in the UK, who implemented what's become known as kind of austerity, and, and a key part of that was a public sector pay freeze. So they basically imposed, you know, no no pay rises, um, regardless of where inflation was, for for the vast swathes of the public sector, um, and in the name of you know getting Britain's debt under control and and cutting government spending, but. As you say, over the years, that that has dragged on and on, and, and led to a a sense of a sense of deep frustration among many public sector workers that you know not only is inflation running at twelve or thirteen percent, whatever it is right now, but their pay is is in real terms smaller than it was in two thousand and eight, which seems crazy to think about. And I think another very important factor is this growing sense of inequality mm. in society, isn't it, of social injustice of a relatively small number of people uh, who are doing extremely well, mm. either, um, you know, people in tech companies, for instance, uh, or to be honest, often the older generation, myself included, who are, you know, sitting on property, who've got index-linked pensions and who are doing really well. And, and then there's a deep sense that a lot of younger people um and people who are not working in uh, tech world or in financial services or whatever, that they're actually, there's a deep injustice. There's a widening gulf between the the haves and the have-nots. And so that all feeds into it, isn't it? this sense of resentment and a, a sense that a kind of social contract has been lost, that, you know, that I I took on a social contract that I was, going to work uh, for the government. I was going to accept that I was not going to be paid as well as I would be in the private sector, but there's a kind of social contract that society as a whole, that the politicians will recognize the sacrifices I'm making and will ensure that I don't fall too far behind. Yeah, and that's another huge historic resonance with that kind of turbulent era in the 70s and 80s, which again, particularly after you know, under Margaret Thatcher's conservative government, which was kind of almost elected in on a pledge to kind of curb the power of the trade unions, which had seemed to be kind of dictating 
to the Labour government, you know, was uh, about kind of unleashing, um, deregulating this financial sector, unleashing, you know, elements of growth, but in a way which kind of saw that, as you say, the gap between the haves and the have-nots kind of widen, you know, the so-called kind of greed is good era, you know, that you might see in, um, in, in kind of popular culture, you know, loads of money and, and, and the kind of flashy sense in which some people at the a thin elite at the top are doing very well at the cost of the kind of fraying of the social contract uh, uh, and the fraying of the sense that we're all in this together. Yes, and it's interesting. I mean, I probably see it more than you do. I, you know, you're living in Oxford. I'm living in near central London. And of course, in central London, you do get this startling contrast between, on the one hand, you know, the homeless people you know even going to our church at all souls church in central london we often have to step over the the bodies of sleep of people who are sleeping and homeless in cardboard boxes and so on just to get into the church and yet you know driving down the street is a lamborghini at sort of three hundred thousand pounds yeah and you and it's just trying to um get your head around the disparities of wealth which you see particularly in london is is remarkable yeah so we're going to go on to talk about the rights and wrongs of whether people in the public sector should go on strike what are the kind of ethical concerns particularly for for christians uh, who might be you know junior doctors or teachers or or other public sector workers nurses considering striking but before we do we wanted to kind of briefly touch on kind of put that in a context of where striking comes from as an idea what what here in the UK the kind of context is who is and who is not allowed to strike didn't we um and it kind of grows ultimately in the in the Victorian era and the kind of 19th century out of the industrial revolution yeah and I think that um although apparently historically there have always been recorded strikes where particular professions withdrew their labor I think it it's very much in the uh, as the Industrial Revolution develops in the 19th century, um, there are continuous battles over working conditions uh, between the employees and the employees. And the employees discover that if you have a co- coordinated uh, action to withhold your labour, it's actually an extremely effective way of um, hitting the employers in their wallets that... Uh, profits are directly related to how much work and output the, the mills and the factories are producing. And, and so uh, you can see the rise of this kind of strike action. And, and I think it was highly effective in improving workers' conditions, uh, unionization, improving wages, but not also that. I think safety um, and a whole lot of other health and safety issues. Yeah, it was kind of almost the first weapon that, that, that the kind of growing, nascent, politically conscious working class developed, you know, because you had the, the Industrial Revolution had kicked off maybe 100 years earlier and and it saw these kind of, you know, the, the corporate titans and the kind of growing middle class barons become immensely powerful, uh, immensely wealthy, successful off, you know, the invention of the factory and urbanization and all these kind of conditions. But it was, it, workers were very much treated as kind of latter day, urban versions of kind of uh, rural serfs and peasants who could be, you know, fired unilaterally and forced to work incredibly long hours for terrible pay. And and it was this sudden discovery that collective action, that if they all walked out en masse, it gave them a weapon that, you know, the boss couldn't sack you all in one go. 
Um, and if every worker refused to then take up these vacant positions, they would be eventually be forced to kind of come to terms. So trade unions in the UK were finally legalized in 1871. And then there was a series of the next kind of 30 or 40 years of quite widespread strike action, but always in the private sector uh, on the whole, um, which kind of established the kind of roots and, and powers and started to win the workers more rights and and freedoms. Yeah. And one of the fascinating things about the history of workers' movements in the UK is that there was always a very strong Christian engagement, particularly coming from non-conformist Christian groups, and in particular Methodism, and that the British Labour Party and the Labour movement has always had a strong representation, at least historically, from this kind of Christian uh, left-wing socialist movement. And I have heard it said that this is starkly different from what was happening in the European continent, uh, which was much more associated with a, a kind of radical enlightenment, you know, French Revolution, and then sort of uh, going on to communism. Uh, so on the continent, there was a much more atheistic and enlightenment approach, uh, whereas uh, in Britain, there was this strong sense that... that uh, Christianity was on the side of the oppressed, was on was those the widows and the orphans and the immigrants and those who had no rights, and therefore uh, Christians could naturally be part of this this movement. Yeah, it's interesting that you know there's a movement called Christian Democracy which develops in this period in the in the continent in Europe, and which basically becomes the kind of centre right. But in the UK, that doesn't happen, and in part that that means that Christians are spread across the both the kind of two major parties at that point, which was the, the Liberals and the Tories. And then this third party bubbles up, the Labour Party, grown out of, as the name suggests, from the trade union, the Labour movement. And from the very beginning, some of its key intellectual forebears were kind of prominent Christian socialists. And so um, there's clearly always been a seam of Christian thinking in Britain, which is clearly in favour of industrial action and kind of collectivization and workers kind of claiming for themselves rights through these quite kind of assertive negotiation and, and tactics, um, you know, culminating, I suppose, in the kind of famous one would be the general strike in, in 1926, when um, about 1.7 million workers went on strike together, the, by far the biggest strike in British history, uh, called by the kind of collection of the trade unions in an attempt to um, prevent kind of wage cuts for um, primarily coal miners, I think, but mostly lots of other industries in solidarity decided to walk out as well and basically try and shut the whole country down to force the government to kind of come back to the table. And that's an interesting because I can remember some kind of historical memories of the general strike. But uh, should make it clear you weren't actually alive at the time. These are <laughs> these are memories filtering down through relatives who were, I presume. You're old, but you're not quite that old. <laughs> But I remember people talking about it. And, and in particular, it's interesting that, that young medical students and, and junior doctors and other people in the professions were actually very proud of the fact that they drove buses and trams and so on in order to keep the country going. So in other words, they were definitely not on the side oh, really? of the strikers. And they were seen they were as on the side heroes. Of the boss class. <laughs> well, they were the heroes who were keeping the, the country going. Right, yeah. uh, so again, different different sort of memories different stories different, different narratives stories, about how yeah. you understand the same event you exactly. know because the kind of labor movement looks back on this i mean it was let's be clear it was a glorious failure you know after nine days they had to go back to work and they didn't actually 
um, win m- many concessions at all. I don't think. Um, but it's kind of it's got it's looked back on by the labor movement with these kind of rotunda glasses because it was this kind of huge act of solidarity where the working class attempted to kind of grab back control of the country from the boss class from the establishment from the elite uh, and say actually you know we have the numbers you might have the power but we have the numbers um but yeah of course it, it didn't it didn't actually work um and then you saw rolling strikes as we mentioned through the 70s and 80s um where in particular, the miners were very militant. And, you know, in that point, coal miners basically were the backbone of Britain because if they stopped digging the black stuff out of the earth, we couldn't keep the power on. Um, and when, yeah, you can d- turn the, when you can turn the power off, you can really start to dictate um, what, you, what, you, what you want concessions from the government. Yeah, but just interestingly, just to point out that before that, when the country is under, quote, existential threat in the wartime, in the Second World War, all of a sudden, strikes disappear. It's all hands on deck. And we are all fighting together to yes to to keep the country going and 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 it was then quite a long time before it was only then in the post war era it wasn't until the seventies was it that that no that it that kind of picked up again yeah mm. that's very true um I guess there is a sense in which contrary to kind of Marxist theory you know your class consciousness only goes so far. But ultimately, when we're pitted in war against the Germans, kind of national identity trumps class identity. And, you know, the coal miner sees that he might have something in common with uh, with Winston Churchill after all or something like that. So maybe that's something for another podcast to discuss. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? So anyway, yeah. fasting, fast fasting forward. forward. So, so Margaret Thatcher forward. comes to power after the, the winter of discontent, 1978-79, which kind of brings Britain to a standstill and... And the Labour government is seen as kind of in in hoc, in hoc to the unions. Thatcher comes to power, um, and she passes legislation quite quickly, which heavily restricts the powers of the trade unions. You know, makes makes it illegal, for example, to do the kind of solidarity strikes that we saw in in the general strike. You know, so so you could only really strike if you had a particular grievance in your industry. You couldn't walk out in solidarity with with your mates in another industry, and it also made rules about how there had to be a kind of proper secret ballot held by the trade union members before they could go on strike. Couldn't just be called over, overnight by a show of hands or whatever on the shop floor. And also secondary picketing. So th- there was a, a big deal about the fact that uh, there were sort of bands of people going and, and joining the picket line and, and hurling abuse at the strike breakers. And interestingly, the law cracked down on that. And and I think legally, I read somewhere, you were only allowed to have six people in the picket line, although you could have other people coming and making tea and, and food for them. <laughs> yeah, and that's all about kind of this, well, at least the way the, the right wing kind of mythos around it was that, you know, trade unions had got overly mighty and had become incredibly intimidatory and aggressive. So famously, there was a, a last kind of ditch attempt to prevent this. And the miners went on strike in 1984, 85, I believe, um, in an attempt to kind of force the Thatcher government to turn around. Um, and it saw some really quite ugly violence between, um, you know, miners who were striking, who were picketing, and some miners decided they wanted to go to work anyway, or, or they took kind of special contracts on higher wages to try and break the strike. And there was even a, a man, a, someone who was killed by um while they were driving to work there uh, i think it was a huge concrete slab mm. was dropped on their mm. car from an overpass by some strikers in an attempt to stop them getting to work and it killed killed them so 
it got and there was this famous battle of all grieve between kind of strikers and the police and, it, and there was a sense i think quite broadly that that britain had become kind of paralyzed and these these handful of 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 unions um had 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 really started to abuse their power and become kind of bullies in attempting to enforce their will on the rest of the country to Matters of Life and Death, a podcast from Premier Unbelievable. So to fast forward to where we are now, I mean, it's interesting. I think we've just been looking at some of the guidance issued mm. to uh, particularly to doctors and to nurses who are considering going on strike at, at present. Um, and... Uh, some guidance from the General Medical Council says that there's no right to strike under the UK law, but under the European Convention on Human Rights, everyone has the right to freedom of peaceful assembly and freedom of association with others. Um, so um, basically, I think what strikers are doing are claiming their democratic rights uh, to, um, and provided they're not in one of those named professions of the police, prison officers or military, uh they can uh they have a democratic right to withhold their labor general medical council ha- provides guidance for doctors and it says uh doctors are legally entitled to take part in lawful industrial action however they have a vital role in planning and preparing for how patients will be cared for and maintaining the continuity of patient care to the highest possible standards so doctors choosing to take part in strike action must still work collaboratively with colleagues, uh, must contribute to the safe transfer of patients between healthcare providers, share relevant information, and check that a named clinician or team has taken over responsibility uh, of your role in providing a patient's care. So, so doctors can't just walk out. Uh, they have an overriding legal duty of care to their patients and uh, doctors will need to use their professional judgment to assess risk and deliver the best possible care. Yeah, I found this really fascinating because it's a clear differentiation, I suppose, between, you know, your classic example of an industrial revolution strike, you know, maybe your, your match girl workers walking out to try and stop them from getting fossy jaw or whatever it was called or, or um, you know, coal miners downing tools and coming out of the pit whereas doctors are kind of have 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 a, a legally binding uh requirement to look after patient safety and so they can't down tools as you say in the middle of the day they actually have to do so they would they could effectively be struck off from the medical register lose their license to practice if they don't ensure that there is effectively a non-striking employee somewhere in the hospital who they can hand over the care of their current patients to that's right and um and of course this can put um, doctors, both junior and senior doctors, in a very con- conflicting position. On the one hand, they want to support the strike, they want to support their colleagues, they want to show solidarity, but they feel torn by a duty to patients to maintain continuity of care. And uh, if you're watching your patients suffer as a result of industrial action, I think that puts... A- puts people into a very difficult position 
Um, the BMA is is the Doctors' Trades Union, uh, British Medical Association, and they take quite a hard line uh, in terms of uh, encouraging junior doctors to strike if it's um, because it's been if the ballot is supports it, and and they also encourage doctors to come and pick it. Um, you know, if you are striking, come and pick it because that discourages other people from from breaking the strike. Yeah, I found this fascinating as well because it's it seems to be tiptoeing almost in contradiction of the General Medical Council, which is effectively the regulator for for doctors. Because the BMA advises do not tell your trust, you don't tell your NHS employer if you are taking industrial action. So, um, don't let them organise kind of shadow rotors in anticipations of strike days, because such to do so would would undermine the effect of the strike. So that they're they're kind of telling junior doctors, um, if you you know if we do vote to go on strike, we really want you to keep it as far as possible a secret or at least ambiguous from your employers, which is in a sense almost saying that is going to potentially undermine the continuity of care you're legally bound to provide. Yes, I mean to be fair, that advice was given before the strike um, has been announced, and I I suppose that once the strike is announced. Everybody will know when it's going ahead, but but there but I don't know if is... the individual doctors are going to be going ahead, even if the BMA has over as a whole voted, because it's not you know it's not you're not obliged if you're a BMA member to necessarily go out on strike. Well, that's right, and 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 you can see this kind of conflict, isn't there? And and it and it does go to part of the ambiguity, the heart of the ambiguity of here is thinking about the ethics, and that is it seems to me that if you just think of um, the the employees in a factory withdrawing their labor it's clear that their actions of withdrawing the labor is hitting the uh, employers directly in the pocket and is therefore very effective but if you think about what's happening with a doctor's strike effectively the people you are harming or threatening to harm are your patients who are innocent parties they're not involved in how much uh, doctors get paid, what their working conditions are. But by threatening your patients, by threatening disruption to these most vulnerable people, you hope you're applying indirect pressure on the management and ultimately on the politicians. And it's, it seems to me, although it's, it's quite an outrageous analogy, it's, it's a bit like somebody who takes a, a vulnerable old lady hostage and threatens to hurt them and threatens, I'm going to punch them, I'm going to damage them, unless you give me what I want. So they're using the vulnerable person as a form of exerting pressure. It's an indirect kind of pressure. And then you get the kind of poker playing, you know, are you really going to hurt her? I don't think you really would hurt her. Oh, yes, I am. I'm really going to hurt her very badly. <laughs> well, go on, show me how much hard. Well, if you, don't, if you push me harder, I will. And it's this kind of poker playing. Mm. And it almost becomes a kind of escalating arms race. You know, we saw we saw that with the um, the nurses. So the Royal College of Nurses here in the UK called for the first time a nationwide nurses strike late last year, was it? Or in January? I can't quite remember. Um, in protest over the government's payoff of being, in their view, too low. Um, and, you know, that happened. Um, I think they walked out for about 12 hours. But they're now saying we're going to do it again. And this time we're going to not uh, give 
you know, uh, exemptions. We're not going to work with our employees to, to organize, you know, rotors and handovers of care. We're, we're going to walk out for 48 hours, do a much longer strike. And as you say, it basically, because the first strike, which had lots, which was kind of hedged in an effort to minimize its impact on patients, didn't work. They're now basically planning a second strike, which quite explicitly and intentionally will have a much more negative impact on patients because that's the only lever they have to pull to make the government kind of sit up and listen. And they say in their guidance, it is always the employer's responsibility to ensure life-preserving services. So we expect life-preserving care to be provided by members of the wider workforce and other clinical professions. In other words, well, ultimately, it's not our responsibility. You know, it's it's their responsibility to make sure that they've got life-preserving care. If all the nurses walk out, well, then they'll have to make arrangements with other professions. And then, you know, you think, does that really fit with the ethos of a service profession? Yeah. I mean, there's a quote in this in this press release from the RCN, I presume it's from a senior RCN leader, which says, you know, I will do whatever I can to ensure patient safety is protected. At first, we asked thousands to keep working during the strikes, but it's clear that is only prolonging the dispute. Um, so they, they are basically saying, you know, a strike, a kind of halfway house, which some public sector workers have been attempting to do, you know, where we will 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 still do kind of emergencies and we'll will step in if it seems like they're about the, the the ward is about to kind of burst into flames and, and all that stuff is basically saying that doesn't hurt enough. So the only way a healthcare strike really works is if you actually do it like you are factory workers and you and you down tools for forty eight hours and and you don't um make exemptions and derogations and, and all that thing. Um so it's complex, and I think we recognise uh, trying to think your way through this, uh, particularly from a Christian point of view. And, and I think many Christian health professionals, uh, there are lots and lots of Christians working in the nursing profession. There are lots of Christians working as junior doctors. And I think they often find themselves very conflicted mm. um, as to what is the right thing to do. Um, we're running out of time, aren't we? So I think in, a, in the second half next week, we're going to come back and particularly uh, try to think our way through what how do Christian principles apply to what seems an extraordinarily complex and difficult situation yeah that's right so um, next week we'll we'll kind of pick up the conversation and think about um, you know is it right or wrong if you're in a public sector worker particularly in healthcare to walk out and, and how have Christians disagreed on this issue and, and what some of the arguments are. So, so do look out for that next week. Um, but for now, thank you very much uh, for joining us as a start of our kind of journey into the world of strikes and uh, hope you found that little uh, whistle stop tour of British labor history. Interesting. Um, the history nerd in me certainly did. Um, uh, uh, if you've got any questions or, or comments, as always, um, you can get in touch with us by emailing molad, M-O-L-A-D, at premier.org.uk. Um, but otherwise, we will speak to you again next week. Bye-bye. Hello, Tim here. Just before we go, I wanted to let you know we're planning a special episode in the next month or so to mark the one-year anniversary of relaunching Matters of Life and Death as part of the premier Unbelievable Network. We're going to be dedicating an episode, or maybe even two, to answering questions from you, our listeners. They can be on any topic, perhaps something you've heard us talk about over the last year that you'd like to go deeper into, 
or maybe instead there's a new development in the news or science that you'd be interested to hear us chat about. We can't promise to answer every question we get, but we're definitely going to try to squeeze in as many as possible into this special Omnibus episode. Nothing's out of bounds, so do get in touch now by emailing molad, M-O-L-A-D, at premiere.org.uk. Thanks very much. from Premier Unbelievable.